Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Food is a very big part of our culture, of our world, and perhaps more so than ever before because of the internet, because of social media. For many of you, perhaps when you travel, the first thing you do is research restaurants before you research where to stay or what, how to even get there. You look at what type of food do they have. I mean, there are endless television shows today dedicated to food. There's culture and celebrations and customs are all about food. Food speaks so much of who we are. And of course, our attitudes and our moods are quite often dictated by food. Perhaps some of you right now can hear your stomachs right now as it gurgles and you're thinking, I hope he doesn't take too long because I am hungry. And so you're getting, as we have adopted into the English language, a new word like hangry as a means to describe our attitude when we are hungry. And of course, when you have been at a big buffet, you are quite full. So food reveals much about our character. And in today's passage of scripture, we see perhaps the largest spontaneous meal ever served in human history. Probably around 20,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And so what's the purpose of this meal? This very important meal that speaks so much to us. It has three purposes. The first is the feeding reveals Jesus' divinity. The second is that the feeding reveals Jesus' salvation. And the third is that the feeding reveals our hearts. First, we'll look at this revelation of Jesus' divinity through the feeding of the 5,000. When you think about what Jesus had already done and had gone through in chapter 5 of John, you might recall that he had healed this paralytic man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And with such a miracle, there should have been rejoicing and celebrations and dancing and laughing. But instead, it was quite the opposite. 
The Jewish leaders were so angry. In fact, they were so angry that they wanted to kill him. And by the time that this whole scene leaves, it moves to chapter 6, and Jesus decides to go to the other side of the lake because he wants to be left alone. But as so often is the case, Jesus is not left alone. There's a huge crowd that wants to follow him. The question is, why are they following him? They're following him because they want signs and wonders done for him. And we know perhaps what that might be like because whenever there is some event, a crowd follows, especially if it's a very special event. If you've been walking in different parts of a city, you might see a crowd gathering and in the middle of that crowd is a street performer, someone who is singing, or perhaps someone who has actually taken ill and a large crowd gathers around to just watch, maybe an accident. And this is sort of the course of society and of human curiosity is this idea that we wanna know what is happening and crowds follow. Well, what about a miracle? A dramatic miracle at that. Everyone wants to see a miracle. In fact, following Jesus so often has the idea of, I hope he performs a miracle for me. And in this instance, he does perform a miracle, an incredible miracle. But notice, and you will see this, is that pretty much most people who were there were not transformed by this miracle. They didn't actually come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, the God himself. Most disbelieved, or at least believed for a moment, then decided to move on. And it's sort of how it is with, if you've ever seen or seen some sort of uh, street performances that they'll be performing, and it could be beautiful. Joshua Bell, the renowned violinist, he performed, some of you know the story, in the Washington DC subways and it's said that out of something like they did did a video, you know, picture analyzing how many people pass by. Thousands of people pass by, but only a few actually stopped. And on that day, he made about $52. One person gave $20. So, so this renowned violinist, 32 people realized. Because generally, you can be mesmerized by a great performance but as we all do, you sort of want to move on. You eventually leave. And similarly here, we're not talking about music. We're talking about feeding 20,000 people. And yet, we move on. That's the great challenge of an event, of something special, of spectacular, something that we see or hear or experience. It's great for the moment, but it usually passes us by. For those who went to Villafranca this past summer, for those high school students and college students, well, guess what this time is now? You're going back to school. And now it is a faded memory, slowly fading away. No matter how special, no matter how nostalgic something can feel, it will never last. And unless our faith is rooted on something far more than a miracle or an event or an experience, that too will not last. Here we see the very work of God. We see something dramatic take place. For the disciples, you would think of all people who would be most impacted, it would have been them. 
Think about practically what they had to do. So this little boy, he has five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, I want you to go feed everyone who's there. And so, of course, they're dumbfounded. They're thinking, there's no way that we are feeding 20,000 people with this. And he says, bring it to me. He blesses it. And then they put it into baskets. Now, think about it this way, very practically. If you are one of the disciples and you have, you know, you have to split the bread and the fish up. So maybe one fish in this basket, one fish in this one, and maybe a couple of loaves here and a couple of loaves there. So you're the disciples. So we're go- I'm going to one section with a few of the disciples and some another one's going to another section with a few of the disciples. And you're carrying this basket. When you go and actually reach out and reach down to grab part, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to give a little piece, a little crumble to that person over there. And maybe I'll get my knife and cut up the fish a little bit. They'll have sushi tonight, you know. And so I break it apart, cut it up, give it. And then I look in the basket. Now, what, what does he see? Now, I have no idea. I don't know how this works. In other words, did it just like suddenly boop, 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 pop up while it was happening? I'm assuming that you couldn't make the basket so heavy that it was uncarryable. And you're trying to feed thousands of people. So some way, these disciples go in, they grab the fish, they grab the bread, they give it out, and then suddenly there's more. And it never ends. It just keeps on going. If you experience that, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if I was one of them, I would definitely, I would never turn away from Jesus because he's totally the real deal. He's truly the person who he says he is. He's God. Two and a half years, whatever few years later, they're running away from him. They're denying him. They're abandoning him. And I have a feeling we wouldn't be that far behind them. Because miracles, no matter how grand or great, they do not last. They fade away. In fact, what happens is that we start imagining, well, maybe, maybe there was more, than, more fish than two. Maybe I miscounted. See, skepticism comes into play. And our hearts are automatically, instinctively going back to that cynicism or maybe pragmatism. Something that says, no, 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 there's no way it's a miracle. We don't want to believe in miracles, even if we see it with our own eyes. That's why Jesus in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man says to Abraham in this parable, Abraham, just just allow me to go back and warn my brothers and my sister, and, and then they'll believe. And Abraham says, even if, they do, even if they see someone who rises from the dead, they will not believe. And that is so true. We either won't believe, we might believe, but then we ration it away as, nah, that's not really a miracle. How many of us have prayed for some sort of help? It could be physical help. Maybe your spouse or yourself, you have a pain in your leg and you say, oh Lord, please heal this broken ankle quickly. And the next day it feels a lot better. Do you automatically think God performed a miracle? Or do you think, well, it's a day passed, of course it would get better. 
if you pray, Lord, please change my son's heart so that he will be more receptive to hear, more willing to listen. And they're a little bit better the next day. And you, do you say, God performed a miracle. He answered dramatically my prayer. Or do you say, oh, he just, had a, he just ate better today. You know, he feels good about himself. He got some exercise. That's why he feels better. Our instinct is to not think that God actually provides sovereignly, miraculously. Rather, it's quite the opposite. We always are skeptical about God's miraculous work. So I think, you, I hope you can see is that a miracle cannot save anyone. It will not cause you to truly believe in him. Now, what type of miracle was happening here? Why was Jesus performing this miracle? He was definitely compassionate toward the people who were there, but there's more than meets the eye. God is performing a dramatic miracle by doing exactly what only God could do. There's only two instances of miracles in the New Testament where there's some sort of physical trans, transmission uh, or tra uh, a, a translation or transubstantiation of some change from one to the other or from nothing comes something. The water turning into wine. And here, there's not, basically two bread, and, I mean five bread and two fish, and suddenly it multiplies. In the New Testament, you just don't see this. The place we see it in the Old Testament is in Genesis, Genesis chapter one. Before there was anything in the world, God said, let there be light. And there was light and it was good. It's very notable that Jesus performs this miracle at the beginning of his ministry to show that he's doing that which only God can do. Only God can take nothing and bring about something. And so in this instance, we see that God is at work. He's doing the miracle to show the world and those disciples around him that he himself truly is God. And then Jesus tests Philip with a very practical question. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He knows the answer to this. He already knows the answer to this story. And listen to Philip's response. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii was about enough money to feed a family for about eight months. So it's a decent amount of money, but it quite is impossible to feed 20,000 people. You would literally be crumbling off bits for individual people. The only reason Jesus is doing this ultimately is to show that the impossible is about to occur. There is no other solution. There's no other explanation. It had to be either Jesus is God or there's nothing else. You have to believe it or you don't. You can't just come up with some sort of possible explanation for this whole thing. And so know that sometimes this is exactly what happens to us. Sometimes God will place us into circumstances and situations where there is no other explanation than for God to intervene. Some of you have experienced this. You've experienced this with health. If you haven't today, you will tomorrow, where somewhere along the way, there is going to be a point where a loved one, a friend is in a desperate situation. And there seems to be no route of escape. 
every road has been blocked. Every path by which you think, if I can just get an expert, and maybe you do get an expert, if we just have enough money, if we just have enough information, this will finally be dealt with. And it's not. When you're in that place of complete lowness, only then can you come and see either Jesus is God, he's the only one who can help me, or he's not God and I don't believe him. But there's nothing in the middle. There's no middle ground. That's so often why he brings us to our lowest place. The Apostle Paul understood this very well. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he says these words that perhaps some of you know, and they're very precious words to so many of us. In chapter 4, verse 19, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's a really wonderful verse of God's blessing and promise meeting us where we are. But Paul, when he says this in chapter 4, earlier on, before he says this, he writes, I know how to be brought low. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. When Paul was a Pharisee and he was learning under Gamaliel and he was persecuting Christians, he was actually pretty comfortable. Everything was brought to him. He was, things were going well in his life. You know, once he met Christ on the road to Damascus, physically speaking, it was an incredibly difficult life. It was hardship after hardship. Now, there were joys, ultimate joys. But in his physical life, he just records how difficult he was. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. So he truly knew how to be brought low. But Paul's point in Philippians 4 is that until you are brought low, until you have nothing, you'll never understand the joy of the Lord. You will not appreciate God's grace. You will not actually believe in a miracle. Miracles will always be wished away or explained. They will always become a point of skepticism. Oh, of course that happened. Of course there's healing. Because you had a cancer doctor, you had an oncologist give chemotherapy. And that's why the cancer went away. It's our instinct is to think on those terms. The last couple of weeks, I had the privilege of meeting with some of you as parents, and we met in the evenings, um, and we discussed and laughed and cried over some of the great challenges that we have both in marriage and in parenting. And I do think that one of the reasons we struggle so much with parenting is that we worship our kids. We idolize them. There was a man who also had the temptation to idolize his kids. You know what his name was? His name was Abraham, the father of faith. But it's very interesting that God calls Abraham to take his one and only son at that point and to climb early in the morning with his son to the top of Mount Moriah. And as he's Walking up the mountain with his son, Isaac says, so dad, where's the sacrifice we're going to give to God, to Yahweh? And Abraham says, sure, very solemnly, don't worry, son. 
God will provide the sacrifice. So he gets to the top of that mountain. He ties Isaac, probably willingly, we don't know, to that altar, that stone altar that he had built. And then he raises his dagger, and as he's about to drive it into his own son's heart, the angel of the Lord comes and grabs hold of his hand, probably literally, and says, Abraham, do not harm the boy. God wanted to see your heart. Probably the Lord will not do that to all of you, to all of us. But you know what? The Lord is doing that in some way to all of us. Because sometimes God brings hardship, rebellion into the hearts of that child. Because he knows you love this child way too much. Because you love coddling this child. You will give everything, including their soul, so that you can be glorified. We talked a lot about this. You know, it's a real sorrow and a pain. But it, the pain of idolatry, of idolizing a child, is far worse than any physical pain that you can ever experience. Talk to people who are undergoing that pain, and there are some even in this room. It is a very, very big sorrow. This is an impossible situation. How does one overcome physical hardship and difficulty? How does one overcome the rebellion of a child? The answer is not going to be talk more, spend time more, put them in a program, give them more money. The answer is, I surrender all, Lord. I entrust this child's life into your hands. And while that is a very hard and grievous lesson to learn, it is so important. This is the place where God wants us to be, why Jesus, his miracle is so much more than just feeding 5,000 people. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he perform this miracle? We're told in Mark 6, 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That compassion that Jesus has for his people, for me and for you, you know, he understands you and me in our lowest place where it is most trying, most difficult. He does not leave us. He is that compassionate. He walks alongside you. He carries you. What is your greatest trouble today, right now? What are you sorrowed over? What is it that is happening in your life that you say, there's no hope? I don't think I can do anything about this anymore. Does God care for me right now? And the answer is absolutely yes. This miracle shows us that, but it's, it's meant to point us to a greater miracle. It reveals something, not just his divinity, but the God who is divine, who also saves, as we see in verses 4 and 5. The, one of the great mistakes that people make about Jesus is that they love Jesus' works and his teaching, but they are in no way impacted or transformed by either. 
And because of that, they, they find Jesus to be actually really a great teacher or a moral philosopher or someone who's generally good, but they aren't transformed by their heart. That's why the rich young ruler and so many others, and perhaps some of us, we can get so close to saying, okay, I surrender everything, Lord. We can get close, but until Jesus says, all right, give up all your riches, surrender your children to me, give up your career success, give up your spouse, your, your dreams of having a, a wife or a husband, give that all up to me, trust me. And even if you don't get what you want, I still want you to trust me. And like the rich young ruler, we hear that and we say, I can't do that, not that. And we would turn away. We almost follow. That's why you can witness a great miracle and yet still refuse to believe. Because the miracle only tickles your fancies, but it doesn't change your soul. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor, preacher, he says this, Christianity is not a teaching, it is a person. It is not merely a moral outlook that is to be applied in the realm of politics. You start with a historical person. What we need, people say, is the application of his teaching, but it is not. What you need is to know him and to come in relationship with him. This is why when the church focuses so much on who is elected president, who is in the Supreme Court, what laws are passed, do these have importance and value in our society and our structure? Yes but they are not ultimate. The church's role is to point people to Christ over and over and over again. What the world needs is not a better president. I have a feeling next year I'm gonna be saying that next year, a couple of years, a lot more, a lot more. What the world needs is not a better president. What the world needs is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and God. But. That's the problem with us. We look at the miracle, at the external, at what is happening with our eyes and ears, and that in and of itself is what we think will change the world. But Jesus is saying, you can even know a lot about him, but not know him. You can know a lot of doctrine. You can know a lot of theology. You can argue points of theology and apologetics, but you still do not know him, have a relationship to him. That's why the miracle, as grand as it is, did not convince the disciples to follow Jesus. And you have to stop and think about that for a moment because for me, I am tempted to think, if I was there when Jesus lived and saw what he did, I would certainly have believed fully much earlier than I did. But the dis so you know what I'm saying by that statement? It's I'm saying I'm actually better than the disciples. And you know, that got Peter into a lot of trouble whenever he would say, you know, I'm pretty good. Even if everyone else turns away, Lord, I will never turn away. And of course, he's the one who turns away the most. And that's our mentality and thinking. If I was there, I know I would believe. No, you wouldn't. You would have ran too. Because the miracles do not change people. Judas was not changed by miracles, that's for sure. None of them did. I mean, can you imagine? They're carrying around that basket full of fish and bread. And we would think, if that doesn't change you, how, how could it not? Even if the Lord were to answer every one of your prayers exactly the way you want it, I guarantee you that would not cause you to love him and worship him. It wouldn't. 
It would just make you think about Jesus as your idol, your pocket God that you stick in your, it's a lucky rabbit's foot, four leaf clover, and then there's Jesus. That's what he would be. Remember instead what we are supposed to see in Matthew 5, I'm sorry, in John 5, 46 to 47, in the context, Jesus says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The New Testament, as we see, regularly emphasizes this point that, by the way, when I was growing up as a Christian, I had no clue about, is that the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. Again, to me, there was a huge titanium wall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything that happened in the Old stuck with the Old. Everything happened in the New stuck with the New. And so Bible stories about Jonah and the big fish and, you know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and our fight going, all that is fun stories. And then there's stories about Jesus. But in Matthew and John 5, Jesus is saying everything in the, New, in the Old Testament is about me. And this story is an Old Testament story, what we're reading about in John 6. You're probably thinking, how is that the case? Well, we see, even though that this place that Jesus was doing this miracle and it's thought that it's on the shores of uh, Lake Galilee. And if you go there in Israel today, it's actually a beautiful area and there is a lot of grass. And so you think, oh, this is pretty nice, but Mark calls it a, and Luke calls it a desolate place. And the reason is because Galilee was thought of as backwater. You know, the rejected people. I mean, sort of country bumpkins. And so therefore, those people, that's a desolate place. And it, there's such a separation between Jerusalem, the city of God, and all the people in the north who are just sort of out there in this desolate area. And so there, suddenly, God comes. Notice the time that this is taking place in John chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this is happening during the time of Passover. What is the Passover? It's the celebration of God delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. And so you have the people leaving Egypt and going into the desolate place, the wilderness. And in that desolate place, what was one of the things that the people of Israel cried out to God for? Food. And they complained to Moses, you brought us to this desert to kill us. And then God sovereignly, graciously provides manna, bread from heaven. It comes out of nowhere, and it's provided. And so the people receive, they eat. And what happens after the people eat? They complain again. In fact, they start complaining, every day it's manna, every day. And so they start getting angry towards Moses and towards God. Well, here we see something very similar. We see God delivering the people from the desert place, providing sovereignly, providentially, from nothing comes bread, food, and they eat, and they're satisfied, their bellies are filled, they feel great in the moment, and eventually, as we'll see, they start complaining, they leave, they desert. Because what Jesus was doing is, just like the Old Testament, 
just like here, is that this story is not meant to just speak about someone's belly being full. It's meant to the, that the soul is going to be satisfied fully. That there's going to be an enemy. The Egyptians are coming out and trying to bring the slaves back into Egypt. And so too, there is an enemy who's doing all, pos- all things possible to bring people back into slavery. And his name is Satan. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, Jesus that is, of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This miraculous story is not just the feeding of 20,000 people. It's the ultimate feeding of the soul so that God once again would rescue his people out of slavery and death forever and ever. But in the last instance, it's not going to be through a feeding of bread, physical bread, but it will be the broken body of God's own son. That is their, our greatest need, their greatest need. That's why we do what we do every Sunday is to celebrate the bread and the wine, is to remember that this bread, this cracker, is anyone here filled after communion? Do you ever think right after communion, you say, I don't need to eat lunch anymore. I'm done. This is so filling. That's why it's ridiculous, actually, if you come up here and you don't believe in Jesus and you take the bread and the wine. Because it does nothing for you. We say it, but it's literally you're eating a piece of cracker and a small, actually, we upped our, I don't know if you know this, but we used to serve two buck chuck a long time ago for our communion, but our elders said, man, this is the, this is the Lord's Supper. How can you pay only $2 for wine? And so we, we give a little bit better quality wine. But um, the, this is, I mean, is this two buck chuck? Is this, what, what is this? If this is all that it is, then it's meaningless to you. We do not eat this bread and drink this wine because it has special power in and of itself. It is a reflection of what we believe to be true in our hearts, that Jesus Christ has given his life, his broken body, to rescue us from sin, death, and the devil forever and ever. And that's why we come with joy and satisfaction We know our hearts are satisfied. And that's thirdly what this feeding does. It reveals our hearts, just like this reveals our hearts. In verses 14 and 15, look at what happens to the people who are receiving this uh, miracle. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What were their hearts like after seeing this miracle? They wanted to, by force, make Jesus king. Jesus did not come to be the king of this world. He's much bigger than that. He wanted to become king over all of our hearts, all the universe. He doesn't need us to make him some politician or some general. 
He is already that over the universe, over the heavenly hosts. But the people there were so self-centered about their plan for God. In their mind, they were thinking, in order to be rescued over the Roman Empire, so their oppression, they want a new military political king. And so, Jesus, we're going to force you to be that king for us. That's no different than us determining, this is how I want God to be in my life. Jesus, every time I pray to you, you need to answer that prayer exactly how I pray. And if you say no, you're not good. You're not kind. When you do that, you are no different than these people who are trying to force Jesus to be king because they're shaping Jesus to be how they believe Jesus should be. Jesus, you should heal my child in this time frame. And if you don't, then you're not kind, you're not good. Jesus, my marriage stinks. And therefore, if you don't make my marriage and if you don't make my wife do exactly what I say in my moment, my time, and I, I want them to be do this for me and do this for me. And if they don't, then you're not good. Why am I, how did you bring me into this marriage? I prayed for you, I fasted for six months saying, Lord, make, give me the right woman. And there she comes, and now you're not fulfilling what I want. I tell you, if we were that person living at this time, we would have been trying to force Jesus to be king as well. And as well, we would have been amongst the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. Because what has determined how I view God, his kingdom, life, faith is all about me. And what society thinks is good for me. What I think is good for me. Commentator William Barclay, he makes this point. When we want comfort in sorrow, when we want strength in difficulty, when we want peace in turmoil, when we want help when life has got us down, there is no one so wonderful as Jesus. Then we talk to him and walk with him and open our hearts to him. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, and here I would say, you know, when you pray to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to reconcile with my spouse. And then the Lord says, okay, I want you to go and do it. I want you to be the one who initiates it. And it's at that point we say, but I don't want that answer. <laughs> she needs to start first. Lord, I want my child to follow you and obey you. Well, you're going to have to go through a time of trial first. And it's going to be unending. I don't know when it's going to... I'm not going to tell you when it ends, but I want you to trust me. But that's not the answer that I want. That's sort of how we approach God. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, some challenge to effort with the offer of a cross, then we will have nothing to do with him. When we examine our hearts, it may be that we will find that we too love Jesus for what we can get out of him. And when he comes to us with great challenges and demands, we grow too lukewarm and even resentful and hostile to this disturbing and demanding Christ. How are you responding when he says, trust me, believe in me, persevere. Don't worry about the results. I will take care of it. Stand fast. Do not give up. Do not lose hope. How do we respond to that? Do we want quick answers and convenience? Again, I'm, 
I, I'm not saying don't pray and ask for things of God, but the problem is that we ask way too much of God without ever actually saying, I just love you. For those of your parents, you know what it feels like when your kids are asking you for so many things, or maybe a spouse, or a friend, a roommate, and suddenly you feel taken for granted, taken advantage of. My friends, are we doing that to God, the, un the God of the universe? This is the grave danger that we put ourselves in when we are asking, but we never sit down and say, oh Lord, I love you. You are worthy, as we just sang. He is worthy. Sometimes you just need to say that. And God's promises, when you place your hope and delight and satisfaction in me, there will be nothing in this world that gives you more joy than him. And so that's why you do not want to simply be about, what are you going to give me, God? What are you going to do for me? It's not just our children who do that. My friends, we do that. I hope you see today that our God came to fill us abundantly, far more than you can ever ask or imagine. If you pray for daily bread, he gives you thousands of fish and bread. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. He fills you far more than you can ever hope for. Never doubt that. And this miracle, this story, is meant to show you how good and gracious and compassionate our God is. Let's pray together. Father, it is, um, it is so easy to forget that you have been so merciful and kind to us. Far too often we settle for less. We ask and we think that you are stingy or you're not quick enough to respond to us. But you know what we need. You know that sometimes no is the best answer to us. And we still have a hard time believing it. But I know, oh God, that even if we were to have every prayer request answered exactly the way we would want it, we would not trust you. We certainly would not believe the God who loved us and gave himself for us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us the conviction of our sin and of our self-centeredness to move away from that and to recognize that our only hope is every moment of every day remembering the cost of reconciliation between us and God. That is the broken body and the shed blood of your son. Jesus, when we come to this table today, help us to come anew to remember that we are not worthy because of what we have done, but because of what you declare us to be, righteous in Christ. And we just are so amazed by that news, that great and wondrous hope. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.